Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Everyone to the Table Dallas. Glad that you're here as we begin the year together here at the table. We're glad if you're here live and in person up at the Mill Street House or wherever you are around the world joining us. We're glad that you've taken the time this Sunday to join us. And we're, we're kind of introducing our theme for the year, which is going to be threads, looking at the different threads that are woven throughout Scripture. But before we can do those threads, we need to recognize that the task of interpreting a text from antiquity presents a considerable challenge, right? Especially when that antique or that that piece from antiquity is the scriptures, where we know we have 66 books by 40 different authors written in three different languages to, to groups of people across three different continents and um, a document that was compiled over something around 1,500 years and it has hundreds of characters and numerous genres. And each book addresses, as we've said before, uh, a contemporary a group of that day and time. So it's a message that's written to them, but also for us, right? And so we have this challenge, right? That the scriptures are very much at hand to us. We have them here. We have them on our phones. We can carry them with us. They are available to us at any time. Those of us who can read, and everyone here can read, think about the advantage we have over generations past. We have it close at hand, and yet, in many ways, it's very far removed. And so what we're trying to do, our task as readers, then is to kind of bridge these gaps and kind of try to strive (laughs) to understand the text, the context of the text, in order to be able to apply it appropriately and properly to our own situation. We have the First Testament, sometimes known as the Old Testament. We have the Second Testament, sometimes known as the New Testament. And Peter says we are the Third Testament. We are living epistles. And so we are to interpret that and then live from that. Um, But that's not easy, is it? It's not easy interpreting a text that's sometimes 3,000 years old or older especially when it's written in different languages and languages that are, for all intents and purposes, dead to the world today, unless you're a scholar of some kind. And, you know, those challenges make it challenging. (laughs) (laughs) To to do this, then, what I'm going to do for the next four weeks it's going to be slightly more teachy than usual because I need us to get these <coughs> principles under our belt. We have eight principles. We're going to cover two a week. We have eight principles that are kind of going to undergird how we approach the text. And I'm calling it read like a rabbi. Read like a rabbi. Because one of the things that makes uh, the rabbinical literature so beautiful is they are doing exactly what we're getting ready to do, which is they begin to look at all of the threads of Scripture... And they don't just take a text in and of itself, they take it in the context of the greater text. And of course we know that beyond the First Testament we now have the Second Testament, the fulfillment of all of that in Jesus. So we have an even advantage over those original rabbis and those readers, right? So the next four Sundays, eight principles 
that we're going to govern how we engage our year-long study. I'm going to pause here. Questions, comments, anything about, are we clear on where we're going and what we're doing? Yes. Yeah, somebody's, some of you are going, yeah, that sounds two different things. Threads is coming. That'll start in February. But we need this basis first. All right? So we're going to get we're going to do two principles a week. So if you've got the handout, the artifact. On the, front, on the front page, there's something on the front, and there's something on the back. We're going to start with principle number one, which is the Bible often interprets itself. Another way of saying it is usually the best place to understand and interpret Scripture is from where? The Bible. The, Bible. the other Scriptures or the Scriptures themselves, right? We don't have to always look outside of Scripture to find something um, that will help us better understand. So in theology, there's a, a space down the center of your artifact there if you want to write some notes. Um, in theology and theological studies, we call this inner, like I-N-N-E-R-Biblical, inner biblical interpretation. Inner biblical interpretation. And so what I've done on your sheet there is I'm going to kind of give you some examples that we'll work through here quickly together. Where on the left side of the artifact, there is the text. I'm calling it the original text, like, like the one that maybe is not so clear. <coughs> and then on the far right side, I've given you what I would say are the interpretive texts and examples of the interpretive text. Now, we're not going to do every one of them and, and do text for each of them, but I wanted to give you a sense of what this looks like. So to begin with, top left corner, sometimes we're faced with an interpretive dilemma. Meaning, we read something, and we go, okay. Like, what's, what's happening? I'm not sure I understand this. So, for instance, in your original text, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 15. Just flip there quickly, and you all have digital Bibles or print Bibles. Genesis chapter 15, work your way there. Genesis 15, you'll be familiar with um, this particular storyline. Perhaps, but maybe not. Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Have no doubt that your descendants will live as immigrants in a land that isn't their own, where they'll be oppressed slaves for 400 years. But after I punish the nation they serve, they will leave it with great wealth. So if you're, if you're Abram in this situation, remember, he has yet... He has yet to have the promise, Genesis 16 is the promise of a nation, a great nation. So if you're Abram and you're reading this, you're thinking to yourself, what are you thinking to yourself? What in the world are you talking about? Yes? I mean, you have no context for this, right? What are we talking about here when, you know, you have your descendants will live as slaves for 400 years and then they'll be let out some confusion, right, as to what that might possibly mean. Now, we could sit there and we could make all kinds of educated guesses. We know the whole story, right? But remember, they don't know the whole story at the time, right? So it seems somewhat vague on its own. But if you look at the interpretive text, which comes in the very next book, Exodus chapter 20, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 12, Verses 40 and 41, so there's your interpretive text, your original text, Genesis 15, 13 and 14. Exodus 12, 40 and 41 is our interpretive text. 
the length of time, it tells us in Exodus 12, 40-41, the length of time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that precise day, all the Lord's people in military formation left the land of Egypt. We know the people of, of Israel are descendants of Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, Joseph goes down. We know that whole piece of the story, right? Now, Exodus tells us this is the fulfillment. Here's the explanation of this strange kind of statement that we found in Genesis chapter 15. Do you understand? We're going to be seeing this. I'm just giving you an example. We can go through multiple instances throughout the year where we'll go, all right, we have an interpretive dilemma. What's our principle for interpretive dilemmas? We start by trying to interpret it in the light of what? Another text in Scripture. Let me give you another example. This one you'll know. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. That's our original text, Genesis chapter 3. What's the, what's the uh, context of Genesis 3? Anybody remember? We should know this. Genesis 3 is the story of what? Genesis 3. Yeah, so it's part of the Adam and Eve story, specifically the fall. We call it the fall, right? And all of the judgments. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, does somebody have it? Anybody have Genesis 3, 15? If not, I can read it. I do. Go. Uh, just the 15? Yeah, just 15. I will put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. So this is a message given to the serpent. Later, by the way, there's a perfect interpretive dilemma. We don't know who the serpent is, but later on through Scripture, by the way, we get all the way to the book of Revelation, and it clearly identifies the serpent as Satan, right? So this is the, the punishment that's been given to the snake, the serpent. Mm -hmm. If you just read that in and of itself, what are some of the possible explanations that you might come up with? This is a serpent. And we're talking about humankind. How might we interpret that? That humans will always hate snakes. It explains <laughs> why we're so terrified of snakes, right? Um, and, you know, there are a ton of people that have actually done interpretations like that. Great men, theologians in the 3rd and 4th century, like Origen and others, were like, well, this is just about how come we cannot stand snakes, which... Um, okay. <laughs> but in reality, if you take a look at the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 65, verse 25, that's the interpretive text, you find something different. The prophet presents a vision of the last days, the time of ultimate peace, and the victory of the Messiah. Isaiah 65, 25 reads, Wolf and lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like ox, but the snake, its food will be dust. They won't hurt or destroy at any place on my holy mountain, says the Lord. It's not about humanity's discomfort with having serpents around, although I don't know, there's not, when we all agree, the people who really love serpents and snakes and those people, like, I watch every once in a while, there's a showdown in Australia where they go into the city and they get all these highly venomous, anybody watch this show? I don't even know what it's called anymore. City of snakes or city of serpents. And they go in and they want the, they get the black mambas and all of these things and they'll get them behind like refrigerators 
and and they'll just be like, yeah, it's in there somewhere, and everybody else is standing like miles away. But there's always that one or two. They're like, yeah, it's just a black mamba. <laughs> they're super deadly. They're a three stepper. You know what three steppers are, right? Yeah. You get bit, and you got three steps until you're down. Right? They're bad. So obviously, when Isaiah declares that its food will be dust, it's a reflection. It's going back to the Genesis story. We're going to see this as we make our way through. All right? Inner biblical interpretation helps us deal, number one, with interpretive dilemmas. But secondly, we have to pay attention to repeated narratives. That's your second one down. You're repeated narratives. And this one I think you'll understand a little bit better. And I'm going to give you the references, but I'm going to kind of reference the story because you'll be familiar with it. So our original text for the repeated narratives is Genesis chapter 17. And you can look at this later. Verses 1 through 4 and verse 16. And Genesis 17 is um, the retelling, again, the second telling of the promise to Abram that he will have a descendants that are as numerous as the stars. You remember that promise to Abram, right? Abram's 99 years old, Genesis 17 tells us. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk with me and be trustworthy. I will make a covenant between us. I will give you many, many descendants. And Abram fell on his face and God said to him, but me, my covenant is with you. You will be the ancestor of many nations. I will bless her, even give you a son from her. I will bless her, though she will become a nation, and kings of peoples will come from her. So a promise to Abram through Sarah, or Sarai at this point, right? Still Sarai at this point, that through her, this promise of the descendants is going to come through his wife. Now, he's 99 years old. She is clearly, and it's been stated before, past childbearing age, right? Does anybody recall what Abram's response? Remember, it says that he fell on his face, and when he fell on his face, because he was encountering God, right? That's the natural response, right? He falls on his face, but when God is done, anybody remember what he said? Don't be bashful. But how? What did he say? He questioned. He questioned, but not just questioned. He laughed. He He fell on his face and laughed. Now, remember, God has just clearly spoken to him, and his response is, (laughs) How should I? You have no idea what you're talking about. Right? I'm a hundred-year-old man. How can I become a father? Or Sarah, who's 90-year-old, how can she have a child? Automatically, when we read this, we just came out of the Advent season. What's reflected in our mind? This isn't part of this. I mean, I think it is, but it's not in my notes. But where did we just read this? Same response. Maybe not the laugh piece, but... Elizabeth. Elizabeth, Mary, going, uh, how is this possible? They didn't laugh. But that laughter piece is interesting because in the very next chapter... Could be a nervous laugh. Could be. No, it's not. Not in Hebrew. That's true. It's like disbelief. No. It's, it is, the, the word is actually Yitzhak. Okay. His laughter is Yitzhak. Yes. Sarah's <laughs> laughter is Tetzak. 
which is the self-deprecating type. It's just one letter difference. But a little change. And it's not just feminine. It's not male to fit. It's not. No, no. It's, yeah. it's, a, exactly. it's, a, it's a different kind of laughter. Hers is a self-deprecating kind. His was a joyous kind. It's kind of like. He's like, are you kidding me? Yes, but how is it going to happen? Yeah. And in the next chapter, 18, the the, um, the interpretive text is Genesis 18 and verse 10. And you know it's Genesis 18, verse 10. The three uh, guests come that we find out later one of them is Jesus, right? Pre-incarnate Jesus. The three messengers come. They're angels. They come to him and he rushes out. Abram rushes out and Tell Sarah to prepare a meal to them. This is right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's a chapter immediately preceding that, right? And they come in and the messengers say, hey, remember that promise? It's going to happen. When we come back in a year's time, she will be, she will have a child. Anybody remember what Sarah, who's listening in the tent across the way, what does she do? She laughed. She laughed, but it was the self-deprecating, mocking laugh. But you, do you see the repeated narrative? It's meant to connect. And by the way, that piece of the story gets bookended because when they do finally have that child, the right way, her laughter changed her, to the Yitzhak. And changed, and they named their son Yitzhak. Yitzhak. He laughs. Or laughter. You see the repeated narrative. And by the way, there's something in there that you probably would not have seen. And we don't have time to get into all the details. But remember, when the promise wasn't coming through fast enough, what does Sarah do? Sarah okay. says, here, take my handmaid, Hagar. Right? Send her in. Get pregnant through her. And then as soon as she gets pregnant, the text tells us in 19 that she's like, she no longer respects me. Send her away. And Abraham sends her away. She goes out in the desert, meets an angel. By the way, the only woman in Scripture in the First Testament to actually directly hear from a messenger of God, an angel. First Testament. We don't have that till Mary. But she's sent out. Says, hey, don't worry about it. Go back. They're going to accept you. She goes back. We don't hear anything else. But two chapters later, when Isaac's been born and he's getting ready to be circumcised, the ceremony... Sarah looks over, and it's the text. She won't even name it. By the way, she never mentions it. She won't name him. Sarah will not use his name, Ishmael. The son of that woman I gave you, essentially. And she saw that son of the woman I sent you laughing. And when she sees him laughing, she sends her away. This time, Hagar and Ishmael they go, same thing, God cares for them, but they go and they never go back. You see, there's a thread of laughter going through the story. But you know, what's so beautiful about it is, or what's so interesting to me about it is, okay, so she got so mad. Sarah gets so mad at Hagar's son, Ishmael, for laughing that she sends him away. But what was her response when God spoke to her? Laughter. Like incredulous laughter. So the very thing that she's so angry about is the exact same thing she did. And we're meant to, to make that thread connection. Like, we all do that. Right? We following me? Questions, comments? Interpretive 
repeated text. Oh my, we got All right. It's two. What's you following? What's the text that goes along with Genesis 17? Uh, 1810. The reflective, the interpretive text is Genesis 1810. Um, so you have those mirrored reactions. And we're supposed to, um, you know, it's, it's a symmetry. It's created. It's, it's woven in there that we're supposed to pull on. All right? Third category is reflection stories. Reflection stories are narratives where there's a clear similarity between the plots of different stories and when their stories maybe share a unique expression. So they're sharing a thematic element, maybe a linguistic element, and I'm not going to give you texts here, but for instance, jo for instance, Joseph, as in Genesis Joseph, Jacob's son Joseph, pause, funny story, I think I've told you this before, I finished 10 or 12 weeks teaching through the life of Joseph on Wednesday nights in my first church in the EPC. And one of the elders at the end came and said, quote, I didn't know we knew so much about the father of Jesus. I know. To which I chuckled and then looked at his face and he had no idea. But that's just funny. So I have to explain. This is Joseph of the first. Yeah, he missed the plot. He missed the thread. But Joseph and David. David mirrors Joseph. So think about it for just a minute. You know Bible stories. What are some of the plot similarities between Joseph's stories, Joseph's story, and King David's story? We're meant to see these plot similarities because they're mirrors. They had both had sets of brothers that yeah. ridiculed them. Yeah, so they were both were younger, or depending upon how you want to interpret David. Some say he was the eighth son. Another text that says he was the seventh son. Either way, they're close to the youngest of sons, and they have older brothers that are picking on them. They were sent away. They're sent away. And by the way, they're sent to visit their brothers and check up on their brothers, right? Both David and Joseph. What else? And the brothers were just so outrageously joyous that they were coming. No. no. Instead, it was cynicism, yeah. sarcasm, here comes the dreamer. Yeah. What else? The brothers tried to kill Joseph. Yep. Saul tried to kill David. Yep. Their lives were, they were constantly, you know, not constantly, but they were often in danger of losing their life because Joseph had many other, I mean, when he had his run-in with um, Potiphar's wife, that could have been a death sentence, right? So people were constantly, if he had gone up and misspoke about the dreams, or maybe given an interpretation of the dream to Pharaoh that he didn't like. Yeah, what else? Rose to power from a humble place. Yes, they were shepherds. So they rose to power. So we're meant to see, it's almost like, okay, Joseph, is, is King David going to be like, is he the Messiah? Like, is he going to fulfill all of this stuff? And then... We look and we find out that David didn't really live up to the fullest of expectations, right? But but in Judaism, both Joseph and David are considered messiahs. Messiah-like. Along with other people. Messiah-like, yeah. They're prototypes of the Messiah, which, by the way, a perfect mirror. It doesn't end at the First Testament. Jesus then is portrayed as the, you know, is mirrored to Joseph and David in some of the same ways, right? It just... 
So, so let me ask you this question then. So, so why or what do these reflection stories, what do they virtually beg us to do when we read them? Or when we encounter these mirror images, what does it almost beg us to do? Anybody? Compare. Sorry? Compare. Compare? I what? Go back and look at the first text and then compare it to... The reflective text. Yeah. What else? <coughs> Is it only just comparison? What's the opposite, or what's the the other side of the coin? Contrast. Yeah, contrast. Like so. Yeah, Joseph is <coughs> is this Messiah figure, right? <coughs> saves the people of Israel down in Egypt. David is the height of the kingdom, and yet David has some real key flaws. Joseph resists the temptation with a woman, but David. Oh, David. He gives in, right? Proving that, no, that he's not the Messiah. We need someone better. So it, it's a comparison and contrast. But David did teshuva. He, he repented and you know tried to rectify the situation as good as he could, which that kind of puts him back up in that sure. status. Yeah, and so don't misunderstand me to say that, that that's meant to downplay David. It's just meant to be the contrast to he's very similar, but he also Yeah, it's something to compare contrast. Yeah, and then of course we know Jesus then is the fulfillment. Both David and Joseph are, you know, um, uh, resuscitated. That mirror is resuscitated in the Second Testament. Jesus, despised, age 30, stripped of clothing, described as a servant, resisted temptation. I mean, we can just go down the list. Right? So the purpose, I think, is to make us stop, compare, and contrast and say, oh, here's a thread. That if we pull on it, we'll see what we're intended to see. As great as Joseph and David were, they are nothing in comparison to Jesus, who is the true Messiah. The prototype is not equal. All right, real quickly. Um, next one is what? Keywords? Mm -hmm. got it. All right, keywords. Um, significant words or phrases that appear through a text, throughout a text, and provide clues to its theme or messages. So our original text is Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Someone look that up for me. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And somebody look up Deuteronomy chapter 12, 8 through 10. Deuteronomy 12, 8 through 10 is the interpretive text. Which one do you have, Mike? Uh, would, would you repeat what you said about uh, significant words or phrases that what? Appear throughout a text that provide clues to its theme or message. And this is where translations often um, fail us. Because there's a lot of times there are key words, as, as um, we just heard from, about uh, the way the laughter played out. It's, in Hebrew, you would pick that up. We don't necessarily pick it up in English, so the key word thing that, that we, we just mentioned. So this significant words are phrases that appear throughout a text that provide clues to its themes. Genesis 2, 2 and 3. On the sixth day, God completed all the work that he had done. And on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all the work of creation. All right, so what's the, the repeated key word there is what? Rest. Work. rest. Work and rest. Work, rest. 
Work, rest, right? So there's a parallel. I work, I rest. I work, I rest, right? But we don't understand. I mean, did God rest because he was tired, Holly? We don't know. We don't know. That's good. We don't know. But, I mean, if we're to define rest from this first uh, usage of it in the scriptures, what might we conclude? Complete. It's completed. Okay, so we get this idea of, of completion, okay? And it says he rested from all the work. Right, so we have this idea of, okay, so rest is the opposite or the thing that we do in place of rest, right? And we know that later on this becomes the foundation for Israel's one of the, the, one of the ten best ways to live, which says what? Related to rest and work. Keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath. The principle of the Sabbath comes from this, right? But it's incomplete. So when Israel is at the mountain and they're receiving their their commandments, if you will, their their uh, ways to live. Sorry, you're right. Um, Deuteronomy 12, 8 through 10 might help us interpret that more fully. Somebody. Deuteronomy 12, 8 through 10. Anybody get it? All right. Don't act like we've been acting here lately. Everyone doing what seems right to them because up to this point you haven't reached the place of rest. They're still wandering in the wilderness. Or the inheritance the Lord gave you, the Lord your God has given you. But you are about to cross the Jordan River and will settle in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. Then he will give you rest from all of your enemies on every side so that you live safely and securely. So what is the connection there between the two texts and their use of the word rest? It's a reward and a blessing. So rest now is a reward and a blessing, and if you want to pick up on what you said, Mike, for the completion of their 40 years of wandering. We know 40, that number, like... This time of trial and testing that requires you to have complete reliance on God. So we can see rest as a blessing. How many of you think of rest as a blessing? How many of you struggle to find rest as a blessing? I find it a blessing and hard to get. Yes. What else? Any, any other connections? another one I think that we see in the second one this idea of peace they're, you, they're working and they're not reaching their goal according to God right they feel like they're working but God's saying no you haven't yeah you haven't hit the goalpost yet yeah. <laughs> well, there was no rest and yeah. there's language about inheritance. So in, in me this language has there's there's more there's more things to come there's you know this future thing. Right. So it's a temporary rest. Right. And ultimately, your inheritance, the land that he's speaking of there, ultimately has a picture that goes all the way to Revelation, right? The, the, the land, and one day your rest will be complete because you will receive all of your inheritance. Great. You see how you're pulling on the threads? Well, there's so, there's so many examples of Jesus saying, you've heard this, but I, I say this. <laughs> like, missing the, I mean, you get a, an image of this where he's saying, don't keep doing what you're doing. You're still missing right. the point of what the real inheritance looks like, what the real 
gift the royal reward. Yeah, that's exactly right. And go ahead. There's also a connection to the word holiness in okay. the first passage, and then to the second one when it talks about not acting the way you've been. Yeah, they've been. There's a call to holiness, holiness and Sabbath mm -hmm. and rest. All seems to be going together. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what I'm trying to get us to see in this interpretive rule, if you want to call it. This is this this discipline that we have to have to say, hey, that that should. There's a connection here. We need to pull on that thread. Don't do it on your clothing. So many but you can do it on the scriptures. So many of us are doers if we're not doing something. So the fact that resting is holy and belongs to God, yeah. that that is pleasing to him as much as our busyness. How cool is that to think that God is honored and pleased when I rest? <laughs> My wife is saying, I can hear. We have brainwaves. Yeah, exactly. All right, quickly, last one of these on the front page. Um, adjacent stories. This one is an interesting um, principle, part of this interbiblical interpretation. How stories and where they're placed in the story is an interesting one, and we won't take the time to go through all the texts. I'll give them to you. But um, in Exodus chapter 32, this is your original text, they're growing restless. It tells us that Moses has been gone for too many days. And so they create the golden calf to worship, as the text tells us, in stark violation to the covenant which, to which they had just agreed days earlier. Okay? The text that immediately follows it is Exodus 35 through 40, which is where a lot of people get lost in the book of Exodus. Which is where it lays out in great detail every dimension, every piece of wood, every piece of fabric that is to make up the tabernacle. The immediate story that follows the golden calf is five chapters of blueprints. What in the world? But if we use the principle of adjacent stories, what are some of the things that pop into mind as to why the writers would then go, wait, hmm, after this story, I'm going to put this. Clearly, the Israelites need some structure and some rules on how to be doing things. It seems like with the golden yeah. calf, that was quickly thrown together as kind of like, a hot, not a hodgepodge, but a quick replacement. Whereas this is, we're going to build something that will last and actually has a plan, is planned to be a place of worship. Yeah. Well, the idea was they were supposed to be the, their own tabernacles for God to be worship, worshiping dwelling. Yeah. yeah. And instead, when they pulled this shenanigan, yeah. mm -hmm, they, they, like lost, they, they lost. They lost. <laughs> <laughs> I was going somewhere else with you. <laughs> they, they lost their status. Yeah. So now they have to have a replacement. I don't think they temple. even really gra grasped the concept of they were supposed to be in the temple. I don't, yeah. So it was probably too. Uh, immaterial for them to be like, okay, well. There were a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. I, I but I mean, this is done in education a lot. Like, How so? You, 
this is a big concept. Let's tear it down. Let's get you close to a concept so you can start looking like it, and then you can become that. Um, again, there's a problem with that, right? Because if you don't ever make that skip over from the easy thing to the more complex thing, then you're stuck at just being a doer and not understanding the being that kind. But this is, I almost see God going, okay, you missed that. Yeah. Let's let's move you into this space. Yeah. Let me show you. Did you demonstrated what false worship looks like? So now I'm going to lay out for you what in what my intended worship is going to look like, and I'm going to give you every detail. So there's no question. Yeah. Well, when you first said it's like, oh, they got bored, so they did the calf, and then it's like, all right, we're getting five chapters of what they should have done. We, we have the little book at home that's like, eat this, not that. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's what it reminds yeah. me of. It's yeah. like, you know, you really want all of this? Yeah. It's like, no, do this instead. It's healthier. It's better. It has, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it'll be more productive. Kind yeah. of what you're wanting is a snack. Yeah. There's a full course. Like, Go ahead, Stephen. It kind of, I see like similarities, similarities sure. to Babel. Is there, is there something that happens after Babel that's similar? <coughs> well, I mean, I think yeah. that, yeah, the, that, that people's, the humanity's desire, yeah. that thread is there, humanity's desire to create um, a God in their image that feels comfortable, that feels tangible. Right? So in the Babel story, yes, they're building a, a plate. They're trying to ascend up to the heavens where the gods are. They want to be like the gods. Here, it's like, well, we can't do that, but we're going to create a god that we are comfortable with. Because the god that they were presented in chapters 30, when they all agreed to the covenant, was like, but he's like fire, and you know, he comes in, he's up in a cloud, and, and all of this, and they have... They want a tangible, we touchable. We can't see it, we can't touch it, Correct. we can't feel it. And that's the worship they were used right. to. So God gives them, well, they haven't had it yet, but right. God gives them that in the tabernacle. He's like, okay, I understand why you need this, so let me give it to you in a way that you can, that's proper. Yeah. That <coughs> might work um, I was thinking when he brought up Tower of Babel and then comparing that with the golden calf, it, to me, it just speaks to our innate desire to have a connection to a higher power, a connection, not necessarily to be God, but to have that connection with that higher power. Right, yeah. Um, if you want one more strange one, you can just jot this down in um, Genesis chapter 9, 20 to 27. Um, we have that strange story of Noah getting drunk after he gets out of the, out of the um, ark. And that strange thing when his son walks in and sees him and his nakedness and there's that, all that craziness that goes on there and the judgment that goes on there, it's followed in chapter 10 with um, a list of uh, his descendants. And you go, okay, I understand we need a list of descendants, but why place the story right there? Well, to me, there's this piece that says even, even, even in the flawed humanity, even in humanity's flawed obedience. Noah was beautifully obedient, bringing and building the ark. He gets out and he kind of loses it and God says, I'm still going to use you. And he lists all the descendants of his that then keep the promise going. Where was that list? What Genesis 9 and Genesis 10. Oh. Genesis 9 is the story of Noah's drunkenness, 20 through 27. Chapter 10 gives us that. All right.
Real quickly, we're going to flip the page, and this one won't be so hard because we've done this a little bit. The second principle is, first principle is what? The Bible often interprets itself. Right, and the technical term for that is? Inter, inner, or not inter, inner biblical interpretation. The second one is that we have to, and this is a key one, and we've done a lot of this, which is why I put it second today, we have to recognize the Bible's literary diversity. Like, you have to pay attention. Like, so I was thinking the other day, during our conversations, it's common for different types of speech to be intertwined. Like, we don't, like, just talk in narrative. We don't just talk in poetry. A lot of times we do it and we mix them. So you could chat with a friend, for instance, and you could recount a story. That would be narrative, right? But you could offer, you could also offer advice, and that would be more instructive, right? For sure. Um, but you could also maybe express your aspirations for the future, and we could think of that as like a prophetic. Like I, I really hope that one day I'll be like this. All right. And that blending of speech is also present in the Bible. You know, each book has its own unique type, but even within that type, coexisting with it are other genres, right? So the way we see it oftentimes in our text, especially if you have a written out biblical, like a, a print version of it, you'll see italicized, you'll see it put in poetic form, you'll do something to show that it's different than what you've been reading, right? So we have to pay attention to that. For instance, some things are song. So you see on the back where it says song there. Um, Genesis 49, verse 9. We read that John, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you rise up. He lies down and crouches like a lion, like a lioness. Who dares disturb him? How are we to read that? I mean, it's a song. How do we interpret and read songs? Anybody? Do, I mean, is is he really like a lion? Like, is he yeah. transformed into a lion? It's a metaphor, it's image, it's emotion. Yeah. Yeah. It's poetic, it's metaphoric, and we have that prophetic. It's those things together, but we recognize that it's a song, and therefore we treat it differently than we would treat, say, a narrative. Right? We have allegory, for instance, in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 3. When God is um, uh, speaking of the judgment, he'll put on Homer. Excuse me. I, that's what I was laughing. I said Homer. Gomer. That's the wife to Hosea. Um, he says, if you don't do this, I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day she was born. So are we supposed to interpret this as a, like, literally he's going to parade, God's going to parade his wife out and expose her nakedness to all the people around? Is that how we're to interpret it? Could be. But we could also read it as allegory, right? Like we would read the, the book as allegory. So she represents shame. The, the, the people of Israel and God is going to shame her, right? So, yeah. You see where we're headed with that? Now, narrative, Judges chapter 7, verse 5. Gideon is, being, uh, is collecting his army to go defeat the Philistines. God says, take the people down to the water. Set aside those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who bend down on their knees to drink. 
So you have an image, right? One person goes down like a dog, stick their whole face in the water. The other ones go down and they're like this. He says, keep the ones that are doing this. How are we supposed to interpret that? That's not figurative, is it? That's in the narrative. He's like, certain people are going to do that. And why would it make sense that you want the one who's doing this, not the one whose face is it? They're remaining alert, looking around. That's who you want on your team. You don't want somebody who's not paying attention. As soon as you put your face down, someone's going to club you in the back. Someone's going to club you in the back of the head. Well, it also seems like a level of thankfulness versus just like selfishness. Like if you're just, you know, dousing your face in the water, you're yeah. like, I, sure. I need to take care of me first versus, you know. So narrative, we read it. We don't have too much problems with narrative. We have wisdom literature, Proverbs 22. This one's famous, right? Train child. Train a child in the way they should go. When they grow old, they won't depart from it. We know that wisdom, literature like Proverbs, they're not fast laws that guarantee. Oh, sure, I wish that was true, that we could just make that a promise. But more often than not, it's true, is what they're saying, right? The Psalms, how about that? A collection of songs and prayers that have a huge range of human emotion, right? So what happens if we interpret them as doctrinal statements? Let's say we open the book of Psalms and we read a Psalm of David and we go, we're going to build our theology from this. Oh my. What happens? Potentially. That's dangerous because I was reading a Psalm the other day about breaking the teeth of the enemies. Yeah, wipe out my enemies. Yeah, you know, stick a spear through the you know. Breaking those teeth. You see where the challenge is? And so if you take and you say, well, we're, we interpret the Bible literally, which is the way we grew up, and we don't know. We don't interpret the Bible literally. We interpret it literarily. Does that make sense? What's the difference between literal and literarily, besides the fact that it's hard to say? <laughs> What's the difference? One enhances the story, and the other art is just facts. Okay. Well, you, know, you can't say ish if it's just facts. Literary is <laughs> exactly. And he became a lion, you know. And literary is you you look like a lion. text yeah. and, and interpret it according to other things. Yeah, we're wrecking that. We do this every day. I mean, we don't do it perfectly. Like we get uncomfortable. We'll say, oh, that was hyperbole. You know, that politician or that person or that song or whatever. But we recognize it as, could that be hyperbole? Because it doesn't sound like he really means that, right? We do that all the time. But if we fail to do that in the scriptures, we're going to come up with some weird interpretation. Especially if you're reading like Psalms. Like, yeah, let me see how I can destroy and drown my, drown my enemy's babies. Well, he feels that way. We're misrepresenting Correct. God. I mean, when you just cherry pick without the context, without the intent, without the, 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 who, the who the author was, who the receiver should be, and what the genre is, you're going to misrepresent the scripture. Exactly. And his intent and is to show... that's going to do more damage. Right. His intent is to show how strongly he feels about something. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, his intent is to... To show his emotion and how people feel. Right, it's not a, it's, necessarily yeah. that God is in that or blessing them. Right, exactly. Going and back to your analogy of the manual, too, right. a lot of people don't take that step of identifying 
what kind of book they're reading. And they think, oh, this is the instruction manual. And I think that's why so much is taken out of, or taken in the wrong text, or the way, context. context. Yeah. And it's interesting then that the, the man, I'll call it man, the God, God man that we follow <laughs> in Jesus, chose in his instruction primarily to teach through parables. And that's a whole nother, as we've talked about, a whole nother interpretive task. And yet Jesus chose that and said, this is the way that I'm going to communicate. Because he was taking and thinking and reading like a rabbi, and he was teaching them to do the exact same thing. It challenges us to go deeper, and that's what this is going to do for us as we begin to take these principles and put them in place. It's going gonna, it's gonna to force us to go a little bit deeper and go, all right, am I missing something here? Is there more to this story? And, of course, when we hit the epistles, as we've seen before, you know, the epistles are really like phone conversation, right, between the original audience, the people at that church, and their unique, specific situations, and Paul, who is answering, typically Paul, who is answering their questions. Our first test is we got to figure out what the question was that was asked before we can then take, okay, this principle applies to us. How many of you women are wearing jewelry today? How many of you men have hair longer than a woman's hair? Right? But doesn't Corinthians, doesn't Corinthians tell us not to do that? No gold, no mixed fabrics. How do we know? So that's the task that's before us. And I hope that these, these two of the eight that we're going to be putting in place are going to help us as we do that to take on that task so that we're better equipped to appreciate the Bible in all of its richness and depth. Any comments or questions as we We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.